0: All right. Uh, there is a, a lot of nonsense on YouTube. Uh, it's super easy to log into YouTube and waste three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours just watching videos. Hilarious videos, but wasted time nonetheless. But it's not all nonsense on YouTube. Some of my favorite videos to watch on YouTube are testimony videos. I've learned a lot of good, solid theology from YouTube. YouTube can be a tremendous seminary for you if you use it properly. It just refreshes my spirit to listen to the stories of how the resurrected Jesus has transformed people's lives. You You can literally spend all day on YouTube listening to just... Uh, Supernatural testimonies of how this resurrected Jewish teacher has transformed people. Drug addictions gone in an instant. You know, just unbelievable, unbelievable transformations. Some of these testimonies are quite dramatic, quite miraculous. uh, And some of them are a bit more tame. But the common thread through each and every one of them is that all of these people will say, Jesus did something to me, and it changed my life for the better. And that can only happen if he's alive. Because dead men do nothing. He radically transforms people, and he changes these people in such a way that they're not even the same person. And that's the power of the resurrection. One of the most dramatic testimonies I've seen was one of a man named Joshua Blahi. Probably butchered that last name. He was one of the most brutal and feared warlords in Liberia during the Civil War and, and not many of him knew him as Joshua. If you go to Liberia today and you say, you know, who's Joshua Blahi, I guess most people will know, but, but they'll know him by his ominous name. Do you know what that name is? You're not going to believe me when I say it. General butt naked. What? Now now you hear that and you go, that's kind of funny name, right? But in Liberia, if you say general butt naked, it strikes fear into people's hearts. He was the leader of the heinous butt naked battalion. And he comes back, he's like, what's going on here? Never a dull moment. The butt-naked battalion, it was a militia who would fight butt-naked. Um, it was a brutal, brutal militia who terrorized Liberia during the Civil War. So, so this general butt-naked, he was a priest in a, a, a tribal voodoo religion, a satanic religion. And he testifies, he tells us uh, uh, in, in the movie, The Redemption of General Butt-Naked, which, you know, go watch it. Um, he tells us that they would fight naked because they believed that their tribal deity would protect them. So he tells about how he would go with his gun naked and he would be, and bullets would just fly off his skin. They would do sacrifices, human sacrifices before they would go to fight, and then they, they couldn't be touched. They did horrible things, child sacrifice, gruesome, gruesome things. They committed atrocities. I can't even repeat. Clearly, he was demon possessed. You know, we see stories in the Bible about people who are demon possessed, and you know they have like almost supernatural strength. so, 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 so during the war in, in Liberia, uh, there were churches praying, and they began to pray. Like this, they prayed, Lord, either kill these generals, get, just get rid of them by killing them, or, or just, let, just make them go away so we can live in peace again. And while in prayer, there was one pastor of a church who had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He showed up, and he told him, go to the headquarters of general, but naked, and tell him that he's mine. So he said, okay, Lord, I'll go. So he went to the headquarters, he went up the stairs into his, I guess his office or whatever it was, and he told him, he said, listen, Jesus has told me to come to you and tell you. He died for your sins. He's come to save you from this. And he led him in the prayer, and then he left. General it says this about the encounter. He says, I just wanted him to go. But it was like the sense of hurting somebody was just lost from my mind. Joshua calls up his guard, and he says, Who was that man that just came in here? And the guard says, I didn't see anybody. Now you got to understand, this isn't like a big complex. This is just like an apartment with one staircase going up. He says, I was down here the whole time. I didn't see anybody come up here. So he takes out his gun and blows his knees off. It says, you're lying because the man came up here. Joshua, general butt naked, he later gets saved and he leaves the war. Now he's an evangelist who helps child soldiers leave that life. Jesus changed everything for general butt naked. That's why the movie's called The Redemption of General Butt-Naked. And it's controversial because you go, how could such an evil, evil, evil man be saved? Go watch the documentary. It's not for the faint of heart. There's some, I mean, it's not, it, there's some violence in it, but if, if you're willing to watch it, go ahead and watch it. He was transformed literally from a devil to a saint. When Jesus saves a person, he so radically changes them that people don't even recognize them anymore. That's what happened to Saul in Acts 9. There's some similarities there, but not, I mean, there's some differences, but there's some similarities. His whole world, both General But naked and Saul, were literally turned upside down when Jesus showed up. And it wasn't shortly after that pastor went and and preached the gospel to him that the war in Liberia ended. Now you can go and check out how it ended and it'll say this or that happened. But the truth is what happened was Jesus came in and he stopped it. Because one man obeyed. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 and we're going to go through a story here, a powerful story of how Jesus, by his resurrection, transforms a murderous maniac into one of the most effective church planters of all time. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing murderous threats, uh, sorry, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here we have Saul. Remember him? He's the one who a few weeks ago we talked about Stephen's martyrdom who stood by as Stephen was stoned to death and he stood by and the bible says he approved of Stephen's martyrdom Saul was so jealous zealous rather for his religion he was so zealous for his traditions that he made it his life's mission to abolish the church to destroy the movement of Jesus Christ to shed the blood of Christians was his duty not just for his nation or his forefathers, he believed this was his duty to even God. So he went, he went around all Jerusalems and he would, and he would threaten uh, murder and violence against anyone who professed Jesus Christ. Now it wasn't enough for him to just terrorize Jerusalem. He had to go after Christians wherever they were. It was his mission. And so he, he went to the high priest. He said, high priest, give me letters so I can go to Damascus to the synagogues and sort of make sure if there's any Christians there, I can arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem so that they could come to justice for their blasphemies. So the high priest said, oh, that's a great idea. So he wrote them the letters, he said, there you go, and off he went. So he gets the letters, and, uh, and, and he, he gets on his horse, and he, he's on his way. I remember about a month ago, I was talking to a guy, um, when I was working, I was helping with the renovation, there's a guy there, and he says, hey, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he was shocked. He said, well, you know, I don't, I don't really know if God exists or not, you know. I don't really know. So we began to talk, and I asked him, you know, I said, what's the highest virtue? What's, what's the highest virtue, in your opinion? And he said, Respect. Like, like most men would say. And so we begin to talk, you know, what determines right and wrong? And, and, and he agreed, look, even if the government says it's okay to hurt a certain group of people, like we both know that's not okay. He goes, yeah, yeah. So some things are just right and some things are just wrong no matter what anyone says. So now notice, Saul goes to the high priest, Right? He goes to the highest official of his people to get the proper paperwork to go and arrest Christians. What Saul was doing was legal. He went through the proper channels. But didn't matter, did it? He was still doing something that was evil no matter what paperwork he had. Jesus is above the decrees of men. The paperwork Saul had did not legitimize the evil in his heart. I like to say a lot, legality does not equal morality. The vast majority of our civil leaders are also disconnected from this truth. Jesus is the resurrected King of glory. He is alive. Jesus said when he resurrected... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has the authority? Like I ask the church of Jesus Christ, who has the authority in the church? Well, Jesus. But guess what? He also has the authority everywhere else. Separate church and state, yes, but you can't separate Jesus from anything. He's, he's the authoritative king over everyone. Every king, every, every MP, every premier, every prime minister, every president bows down to the authority of Jesus. The Bible says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. And it says that to the kings of the earth. The resurrection is the stamp of his kingship because he lives. And he has authority forever. And so no matter what governments do or say, Jesus is above that because he's alive. And so Saul gets his letters. He's trying to do the thing legally. He's trying to do the thing right. But he was about to come face to face with the real authority that was in heaven and about to show himself on earth again. And I'll tell you what, it wasn't the high priest in Jerusalem. So then Saul, right, he gets on his horse, double checks, makes sure he has his letter. He's all good. You know, he's got some assistance with him too, so they get on their horses and they hit the dirt road. And as he's traveling down the road to Damascus, probably quite happy with himself, he has no idea what's ahead. Jesus was about to change everything. Verse 3 of chapter 9 tells us, So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So this was supposed to be a rather routine trip to go arrest more Christians. But instead Saul finds himself surrounded by a blinding heavenly light that knocks him off his high horse. That's where that term came from, by the way, from Acts chapter 9. He knocks him off his high horse, and he hears a a voice that asks him a rather perplexing question. Saul, Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? So number one, the heavenly visitor calls him by name. He knows his name. He says it twice. So he's not mistaken. Saul, Saul. I mean, think about the fear that, that, that must have gripped his heart when he heard this question. Wait a minute. How am I persecuting you? Who who are you? I don't really know who you are, but I know that you're fierce. I know that you're strong. I know that you have authority. But how have I how have I persecuted you? Imagine that the most powerful being in all creation, like meeting you on the road and saying, "Why are you persecuting me?" Whoa, 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 whoa! (laughs) Wait a minute. Pump the brakes. Being confronted by this man who's like emanating such a bright, powerful light that it knocks you off of your horse and literally paralyzes you where you lay. You know. And then if that's not enough, th- this all-powerful man accuses you of persecuting him. Obviously, this is not a person you're, you, you want to be messing with. It's not a person you want to trifle with. And now Saul finds himself in the position where he's offended this person. He's offended this powerful being that he can't even comprehend. And the resurrected Jesus meets him on the way to persecute believers, and he does it not to destroy him, but to change him. So Saul's pride, you know, he was quite a proud man, at this point just melts off. And he responds Who are you, Lord? Who are you? He recognizes that he recognizes at least that this heavenly being is Lord. That he had authority that was above the authority on earth. He didn't need to be convinced that Jesus was Lord when Jesus showed up. It was just obvious. The radiant brightness reveals his identity. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And at this moment, Saul's entire universe flips on its head turned upside down. Everything Saul understood about life, everything that was an absolute for him had just dissolved before his eyes because the resurrection changes everything. If it doesn't change everything, it changes nothing. The God he believed to be serving, he was actually persecuting. Like that's, come on, that's crazy. Imagine serving God with all your heart and all your mind, or so you think, and then God shows up and he says, actually, you're persecuting me. His religious assumptions were blasted to pieces. All his education was smashed to powder. His pride was tossed into the sun. Everything he understood about God, about man, about sin, about righteousness, it was all utterly pulverized in the light of the resurrected Jesus Christ. All of it. So when Saul stood by and approved the death of Stephen, he was in a very real way approving of the death of Jesus. When he arrested Christians and had them killed, he was in a very real way arresting Jesus and murdering Jesus. And this is a point of tremendous comfort for believers, but it's a point of unspeakable terror for those who come against him and his people. Recently I saw a video of a pastor I think it was Ont- in Ontario, he was issued a fine uh, for having a church service in our own community here, I think maybe Leamington or, or somewhere, somewhere in Essex County, and uh, a very frightening conversation happened. So the pastor informs the officer that by coming up to break up their worship gathering that he would be breaking the Canadian Criminal Code. In section 176, 2 and 3, and it, it says this. This is the Canadian Criminal Code, section 176, 2 and 3. It says, Everyone who willfully disturbs or interrupts an assemblage of persons met for religious worship or for a moral, social, or benevolent purpose is guilty of an offense, punishable, and summary conviction everyone who at or near a meeting referred to in subsection 2 willfully does anything that disrupts, disturbs the order of (laughs) that word (laughs) of the meeting is guilty of an offense, punishable in summary conviction. So he says, you know the criminal code says if you interrupt a a religious gathering and disturb it, uh, that's a crime. That's punishable by the law. So the police officer then said something that sent a chill down my spine, literally. He said, my issue is not with God, my issue is with you. What this officer doesn't realize is his issue is with God. His problem is with God. He's coming against God himself when he interrupts God's family gathering. Like, my goodness, imagine for a moment if you went to your child's home, Father's Day or Mother's Day or some day to honor you, okay? And the cops showed up and they find your child and they disperse the gathering. Would you take that a bit personally? Would you feel personally attacked? Would the persecution your child is facing on your account not also be your persecution? Of course it would be, and that's just an earthly example. This officer came to break up God's celebration. This officer entered God's house where his people were gathered around to celebrate him. and tried to break it up. This officer literally has come against God himself. His problem's not with the pastor, his problem is with God. Jesus said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't mention anything about Stephen. He didn't mention anything about the letters to Damascus or the Christians he had arrested. He didn't name anyone by name. He named himself. He said, you are persecuting me. And so when this officer comes and says, I don't have a problem with God, I have a problem with you, I'm scared for him. That's why a chill went down my spine, because I said, "Oh, Sir, I don't think you understand what you just said. I don't think you understand who you're dealing with. God, be merciful to that officer. Grant him repentance. Help him to see what he said and what he's doing, that he might turn. So when any believer is persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. He takes it personally. Why? Because he's alive. That's why. Because he's alive. But what is amazing here is that Jesus doesn't come to condemn Saul. He tells him to get up, go in the city, and then he'll tell him what to do when he gets there. So although although Saul has come against Jesus by coming against his people, Christ confronts him not to destroy him, but to make his grace and mercy known to him. See, in my flesh, in my flesh, I would like to see every wicked politician and police officer and government official that's persecuting the bride of Christ, I would love to see them come to justice and may God deal with them in the way He sees fit, but what we see in this instance is Christ going to the top dog, the main persecutor, not in His wrath, but in His grace. And yes, it is scandalous. Like, my goodness, uh, this man was tormenting the church, and here the Lord comes in mercy. He comes to him in mercy, not to destroy him. He could have he destroyed him in a moment, in a second. But he came to save him. If anything, this only reveals truly how sovereign this Jesus is. Jesus doesn't come to, to, to Saul stressed out. He doesn't go to Saul uh, uh, in, in, you know, he's not intimidated. He's so sovereign. He's so much in authority that just a glimpse of his presence sends the Sauls of the world tumbling to the ground, shaking in their boots, groveling at his feet. That's Jesus, powerful, strong, authoritative, resurrected, not intimidated, but intimidating. (laughs) You know, two days ago we met and we talked about the cross and how he he died and how he was beaten and how he looked weak. And here we are, you know, three days later and the tables have turned 180. He's alive. And he changes everything. And we need confidence from the Lord in that authority. And so Saul rises up from his spiritual beatdown And he can't see. His eyes are open, right? But he can't see nothing. He's blind. This is interesting to me. Jesus strikes him with a physical manifestation of his spiritual reality. Saul was blind. He didn't know God. He was blind. And Jesus comes and makes him physically blind to make it abundantly clear to him and to you, he was wrong about everything. Even when he could see, he was blind. And so Jesus says, let me make it physical. Let me me help you to see, if you will, that you can't see. Only Jesus gives sight. Only he saves. And he saves whom he wills, when he wills, and how he wills. Why? Because he's the sovereign over all creation. There's no authority above him. He sits enthroned forever and ever. And so Saul's assistants help him up into the city, and, and he sits blind for three days, neither eating or drinking. And I find it interesting. Remember, but the story of General Butt Naked, how General Butt Naked's uh, assistants was like, I didn't see anybody. But Saul's assistants were like, well, we didn't see nothing either. Interesting similarities here. Both historical events. Seems that Jesus is consistent. In a matter of minutes, the resurrected Jesus changed everything in his life. Everything. So he sat blind, and all he could do was pray. His only hope was that somehow God would just have mercy on him before he starved to death. So in the same town where Saul went, there was a godly man named Ananias, and the resurrected Jesus appears to him in the vision as well. In verse 11 and 12, he says this, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias was not ignorant of the situation. and He heard about Saul and how evil he was. And they, they heard through the grapevine that Saul was coming to, to Damascus to arrest Christians, and to persecute Christians, and, and he knew that Saul had authority from the high priest to do all this, and so he says, Lord, I know about this guy, you know, and what he's done to your people. Are you sure? <laughs> are you sure about this? But, but Jesus is unconcerned. His concerns are none of Jesus's worry. So Jesus tells him in verse 15, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's the thing about Jesus, you see. He knows your fears. And what he'll do often is lead you into those fears to confront them head on. So Ananias is concerned, right? Right? He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints. And Jesus doesn't even bother to to deal with that. He just says, go. Don't worry about it. He's mine. So Ananias obeys the Lord, and he goes to find Saul, and he finds him in the house where Saul was. And he enters in, and he approaches him, and in verse 17, he says... Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like that, Saul receives his sight. He stands up, he gets baptized, and he eats some food. And it didn't take long before this dramatic turnaround was felt in the city because. Paul spends some time with the believers in Damascus, and he, it tells us he immediately begins preaching Jesus in the synagogues and saying he is the Son of God. He came with letters to go into those synagogues to arrest those who say Jesus is the Son of God. But here he is saying, actually, I changed my mind. <laughs> uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and you should believe him. And all the people who heard it were amazed, right? Verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this man? Or sorry, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Everyone knew. Imagine that, eh? Saul gets to the front and the believers are like, oh man, here we go. Here's the Saul, you know, we know what's coming now. And he goes, actually, um, Jesus is the son of God and and he's, he's the way. What's going on here? Saul increases in strength and his power and he confounds everyone in the city. Not only does he come with the message of Jesus, but even those who go, wait a minute, Saul, no. That's not what you're supposed to say. That's not true. Saul confounds them. He refutes them. And so after a few days of this, the Jews are like, all right, enough is enough. We need to get rid of this guy. So they plot to kill him. But the plot becomes known, and he escapes Damascus. He's let down uh, in a basket through the opening of a city wall, and he escapes back to Jerusalem. So remember when I said Saul, he left Jerusalem to arrest and terrorize Christians, and now we've come full circle. He's returning from his trip with no Christians except himself. (laughs) He left Jerusalem to arrest Christians, and he returns as a Christian. So what happened in between leaving Jerusalem and returning back? What could possibly cause such a radical transformation? I don't know. Maybe seeing Jesus alive might do it. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, the believers didn't believe he was really a disciple. They were afraid of him. They thought maybe this was a plot. But Barnabas stands up and he says, look guys, this, he's legit. He saw the Lord. He told them about how Jesus appeared and spoke to him, knocked him off the horse. And now in, in Damascus, he was, he was, uh, there was a plot to kill him and he escaped. He's the real deal. And soon some of the Hellenists arose in Jerusalem and tried to kill Saul. So, so, so off to Tarsus he went. He had to flee from Jerusalem too. And after the conversion of Saul, it says, the church experienced a time of peace, and they all walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of dramatic conversion stories, but this is maybe one of the most dramatic ones, right in the Bible. But the principles of what happened to Saul apply to everyone. When Jesus comes to save a person, he changes everything, not just some things, everything. I've said it a lot before, but it does really confound my mind that you could tell someone that Jesus is alive and they just kind of shrug it off. Seeing a man dead and then seeing him alive is crazy. Maybe they don't care or they're apathetic about it because they don't believe it or because whatever. But if, if, if you've ever been to a funeral and seen a dead person, you know. If that person were to just sit up and go, what's going on here? You wouldn't just go, oh, there's Uncle John being Uncle John again, you know, rising from the dead. Oh, what a guy, you know, we throw this whole funeral, we pay all this money, and what does he do? He comes back, ha, <laughs> ha, you know. You wouldn't do that. You'd be like, what? What's going... Your world would be turned upside down. And, and Jesus isn't Uncle John. <laughs> He's not your, your, your quirky uncle. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he predicted it, and he did it. And now he says, follow me, because I have all authority in heaven on earth. And some people just go, meh. The only reason they have that reaction is, is because they're dead. That's the only logical reaction or um, reason rather that somebody would shrug their shoulders at the resurrection of Jesus is because spiritually they're just dead and they can't comprehend unless Jesus shows up. The power of the resurrection changes everything. He saves you in your sin but he doesn't leave you in your sin. There's a song by Keith Green, he put this love in my heart. You put this love in my heart? It's true. But something that's not often discussed is that God also puts a hate, hate in your heart too. He puts a hate for for sin. What he does is he puts a love in your heart for himself and in goodness. And then he replaces uh, uh the hatred you once had for, for him, he replaces with a hatred for sin. You you can't love God and love sin. You can't love children and not hate abortion. God puts a hate in your heart too, a hatred for what is evil. And so what he does is the sins you once loved, you come to grow to hate. That's what the resurrection does. You know, all of our lives were headed for Damascus. You know, we had this lust in our hearts and we had paper from the devil to to do his bidding, and we're all traveling this road to nowhere until Jesus comes and he knocks us off that horse. And he turns us around and he goes, Go back to Jerusalem, go back to the holy city, come to God and receive forgiveness and peace. Jesus takes the dry bones of your life and he makes them alive. He changes everything so dramatically that when people see you again, they're amazed and they say, hey, who is this person? I remember an old friend messaged me once when I got saved and he said, okay, okay, Alan. Good one, you know. We all know you're just pulling our strings here. We all know this is just a joke. So when are you going to come out and just say you've been playing us? He said, well, never. (laughs) Never. You know, I'm actually a Christian. They didn't recognize me. I still look the same. I still had the long, scraggly hair, believe it or not, back then. I still had the, the stupid uh, chin thing going on. But they didn't recognize me. They really thought I was messing with them, but it wasn't a joke. Because when Jesus shows up, Sorry, I can't, you can't resist it. He changes everything. That's what the resurrection does. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your resurrection power in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for that resurrection power you've manifested in our lives. Saving us from our sin, saving us from our folly, redeeming us being patient with us, Lord, we just pray and ask you um, to give us confidence in your authority and your power to not compromise, but to stand firm. You are alive and we celebrate you this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.